Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 90. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and far more enjoyable if you have a copy of God's Word open and keep it open throughout the duration of our time together. And if you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, Psalm 90 should be around page 496 of one of the Bibles that we provide underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we'd love to have you take that copy of God's Word home with you so that you might be able to read it and learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Just consider that a gift from our church to you. We're so glad that you're here with us today. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in the superscript of Psalm 90. Uh, But before we turn our attention to Psalm 90, just want to continue to remind us where we are and situate us. Uh, Over our time in this series studying the songs of Moses, we have learned that there are four songs which are called songs of Moses across the Bible. There's Exodus 15, 1 through 21. There's Deuteronomy 31, 30 through 32, 47. There's Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17, where we will be today. And then our next time together in this series will be in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. Learning from Exodus 15 that participation in the praise of God leads to trust in the promises of God. And from Deuteronomy 32, that God is zealous for the holiness of his people. But after leaving the people at the edge of the promised land, our last time together, the situation again goes from bad to worse, from that moment to this, as the people delivered by God are actually exiled by God. Their sin, once again, provoked God's judgment. Judgment, Psalm 89, is actually lamenting. So if you have your Bible open, if you just look just above the text that we're going to be reading today, Psalm 89, verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. 
The end of Psalm 89 segues not only to Psalm 90, but also to book four of the Psalter. So if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see there, right before Psalm 90, it says book four. And if you're not very familiar with the book of Psalms, there are actually five books in the Psalter. Books one and two, Psalm 1 through Psalm 72, which largely follow the life of David through First and Second Samuel. And then we find book three of the Psalter, Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 89, which trace Solomon's life to exile. Then book four of the Psalter, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106, which begin to highlight these reflections as the people of God are in exile as they think about the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah, and they're reflecting upon God's word. And then book five, Psalm 107 to Psalm 150, which actually as the people have reflected now on God's word, they begin to look forward to this glorious future restoration when God will restore his people through the agency of the Davidic king. And that means that even though Psalm 90 is in a different book of the Psalter than Psalm 89, it is actually here because of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm that begins with this exuberant praise rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord, but it actually ends with lament as it begins to question whether the promises of God have failed with the end of the Davidic monarchy and the people being in exile. God had said to David that he would always have a king on the throne, but by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 25, the Babylonians, verse 6, have captured King Zedekiah and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Captured by Nebuchadnezzar, has all of his children paraded before him and slaughtered and then blinded. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar knew of the promises that God had made and thought that he could make those promises fail as he ensured that the last thing that the Davidic king would ever see was the end of the Davidic line before being carried into captivity along with all Israel for 70 years. And it seems that Psalm 89 is lamenting that reality as it begins to recall the promises of God to have rest in the land and to remember the promises of God that a ruler would sit on the throne. And then as it begins to ask, have the promises of God failed? And that's why Psalm 90 is here at the beginning of book four. As the people of God are now in exile and they're wrestling with how to process all of this reality, being in a foreign land, no king on the throne, not having what God has promised to be around them, there's no temple. They go back to the oldest psalm in the Psalter, to a time about 900 years before the exile, to about 1446 B.C., around the 15th century before Christ, when Moses had actually led the children of Israel out of the house of bondage and out of the house of slavery, all the way up to the very edge of the promised land, but could not enter in himself. And looking out and seeing the promised land from Pisgah, but not being able to enter in, Surely others at that time would have thought, as they looked at God's greatest leader at that point in the Old Testament, have the promises of God failed? A generation is dead. Moses is replaced by Joshua. Moses doesn't even get to enter in. The covenant mediator is excluded. The man of God cannot enter because of his sin. 
So now the people of God facing the loss of the monarchy, the seeming failure of all of God's promises, exile from the promised land, go back to what God taught Moses 900 years before. They go back to his situation and they learn specifically from Psalm 90 where to find hope and where to find support in the trouble of exile. And in so doing, teach us generally where the people of God always find hope and support in the trouble of every, life, every time they face it in this life, God. Psalm 90 is a very sober and sobering psalm, but it is filled with hope. So let's turn there now. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself for here speaking to us today. A prayer of Moses the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, as Pastor Tim reminded us, the enemy would seek to destroy relationships and he would seek to distract us during this time, preacher and congregation alike. Father, we ask that you would help us now focus our attention on your word, that now we might give our attention to what you have revealed to us in the scripture and that by giving our attention to it, we might come to a better understanding not only of what Psalm 90 teaches, but of who you are and what you have revealed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we ask that you would help us as we study this psalm today, that we might grow in the fear and knowledge of God, that we might gain a heart of wisdom ourselves. And Father, we ask for all who are here that they might gain a heart of wisdom if they are not born again by believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him by looking to the Savior who was pierced for our transgressions, that you would do the good work of building up the believer in Christ, 
or bringing the unbeliever low that they might turn to Christ in faith. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen. Exile is traumatic and terrifying. Our sense of what we are is very much determined by the place that we live in and the people that we gather with. The normal ways that we find worth and all of the ways that we typically find significance vanish. The first wave of emotions recede and they leave us with a feeling of emptiness, of being worthless, of our life being meaningless. We don't fit in anywhere. No one expects us to do anything. No one needs us because we're not from there. We're simply extra baggage. We're not necessary. Which is what all of us are often fighting for, a sense of belonging in meaningful existence. Israel was taken into exile in 587 BC. The people are uprooted from the place in which they were born. The land that had been promised to them which they had possessed, in which their identity as the people of God had been formed and shaped over generations. And then they were forced to travel across the Middle Eastern desert, 700 miles, leaving home and temple and hills into a new land, Babylon, or strange customs and an incomprehensible language and a landscape that was oddly flat and featureless. All the familiar landmarks were gone. Everything that they would have called home vanished. The weather is different. The faces are different. They're unrecognized and unrecognizing. Israel's exile was violent and traumatic. But the worst aspect of it was that they were there where they did not want to be. They were separated from home. They were not permitted to reside in the place where they could comprehend what was taking place around them or appreciate their surroundings. They were forced to be away from absolutely everything that was familiar to them. It was an experience that was dislocating. Everything was out of joint for Israel. Nothing fit together. And the thousands of details that had built up through the years that gave a sense of at-homeness, gestures, customs, rituals, Phases, peoples, places were all gone. Life was ripped out of the familiar soil of generations of language and habit and weather and storytelling as they were rudely and violently and unceremoniously dropped into an unfamiliar spot of earth. It didn't matter if the place of exile was more pleasant in its weather. Or if the people were incredibly nice. Or if the food somehow just tasted better than their food. Because it wasn't home. And yet, the very strangeness of the exile opened up reality to them. As accidents and tragedies and disasters of any kind can force the realization that this world is not predictable. That reality is far more extensive than our habitual perception of it. So Psalm 90 teaches us that the pain and the alienation of exile brought clarity. Exile is the worst that reveals the best. God, death, and grace.
Notice first, God. Look with me, the beginning of Psalm 90 again. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the only psalm in the Psalter that is attributed to Moses. And the superscript actually takes us back to the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 33. The superscript just above verse 1 takes us back to the book of Deuteronomy just after the previous song of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, at the edge of the promised land in Pisgah, after one of his great songs in Deuteronomy 32, Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1, the man of God blessed the people of Israel before his death. A man's last words often summarize what was first in his heart. Was Moses going to focus all of his attention what was wrong with God's plan and then begin to feel sorry for himself on the other side of this? No. Moses' last words in Deuteronomy 33 reflect his life of faith. His life of faith as he actually marvels at finding a home in God after generations of homelessness. After being told that he'd never enter the promised land. Look with me at Deuteronomy 33 verse 27. Moses, the man of God. Moses, the one who's been wandering. Moses, the one who's been in the wilderness. Moses, the one who never enters the land, says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and under are the everlasting arms. It is always easier to complain, as Moses knew very well. The people complained about water, the people complained about food. The people complained about Moses' leadership at Korah. Friends, are you quick to complain? And would those who know you best say that you are a complainy person? Some look at life and complain of what is not there and what is not theirs. But others, like Moses, at the end of a life where there are missed expectations, when there are unfulfilled dreams, when there are hopes that never came to fruition, when there were promises that still seem far off, Rejoices in God as a refuge after a life of homelessness and missed opportunities. Describing the Lord as the dwelling place of his people, the very idea that Psalm 90 picks up. If you have your Bible, turn back to Psalm 90. The very idea that Psalm 90 picks up in verse 1. God is a strong tower. God is a place of safety. God is a place of provision for these exiles. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, from the migrations out of Egypt to all of the wanderings in the wilderness, and even now in the exile, God has been the constant home of his people in, verse 1, all generations. Now, careful readers will notice the important lesson that Moses is teaching it was never about the land, and it was never about the temple. It was always about God. What made the land special was God's presence, and what made the temple special was God's presence. But the psalmist Moses teaches us, from the bondage of Egypt to the bondage of Babylon, God's presence has always been with his people, and the never-beginning, never-ending 
God will never leave them. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If you've ever been to Israel, one of the things that you'll know, it's now just a show as you travel through the land. It's a wonderful show to go and see, but there are so many things where they're telling you Jesus was here and he walked on this and you could buy this part of the cross, all of these things, and you never know if that's actually accurate or right. But one of the things that has not changed is the countryside and the Sea of Galilee and the mountain range, the most stable of all things there. Before the mountains were brought forth, before the earth had been formed and the world from everlasting, unchanging, you are God. In the psalm, God's preexistent etern eternality isn't simply a contrast to human brevity. It is. God is eternal and you are not. God is unchanging, you are not. God is unending, you are not. God will never die, you will. But more importantly, God's everlasting eternality is the very answer to their problem. Any microscopic look at a singular moment in Israel's plan or in the overarching story of redemptive history might cause anyone to question, have the promises of God failed? Just open your Bible to any book and drop in and don't think about anything else. Have the promises of God failed here in Numbers? Have the promises of God failed here in Deuteronomy? Have the promises of God failed here in Judges? Have the promises of God failed here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? And they would lead us to conclude. The promises of God have failed. The people rebel. Moses did not enter. The world has gone wild. Jesus is dead. But against the backdrop of God's eternality in our finitude, the psalmist teaches us that we can actually assure ourselves that the promises of God have not failed and they will never fail. The same thing is true at any moment in our life. Drop in at any singular moment and you are probably questioning yourself. Have the promises of God for me failed? And you would probably be right to conclude in that moment against all of the other moments and not thinking of future moments that they have failed. The worst of all possible things has happened. It's not the way that it was supposed to be for me as a believer. Everything that I thought would be true is not true and everything I want to be true has not come yet. The promises of God have failed. But Moses tells us that the disappearing generations in the seeming failure of God's promises, actually have to be evaluated against the backdrop of the changes, changeless eternality of God. His unending, enduring presence, the psalm teaches us, has always been with his people. And though his promises seem to have failed in their lifetime, they have to remember their lifetime and their brevity against his eternality and his unchanging promises and know that they will not fail simply because they have not seen them come to fruition. Friends, if you just turn to the book of Hebrews today, 
One of the wonderful things about Hebrews chapter 11, if you go and read that chapter this afternoon, is that it is a reminder to us that the promises of God have not and will not fail. Though the people have not seen the fruition of everything that they placed their faith in, they believed and they were not made perfect apart from us. God's promises never fail. Psalm 90 actually opens up with a statement of faith. It opens up with a statement of faith that asserts that the never beginning, never ending God will never leave them, will never forsake them, and will always keep his promises. His promises cannot fail. And you can imagine why the psalmist opens up this way. The people are weak and they're worn out. They're tired. They're exhausted from a lifetime in this world. And the very first thing the psalmist does is he draws their attention upward and he says, remember who God is and what kind of God we serve. He is unchanging. His promises will not fail. Exile is the worst, but it reveals the best. And it draws their gaze upward. God. But notice second, death. Look with me in verse 3. Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. There was a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses actually ties the previous section to this section with references to time in verses 3 through 6. Just look at all of the references. Years. Yesterday. A watch in the night. In the morning. Twice. In the evening. A man's life is described like hours of the day. There are never enough of them. Our life just continues to churn on and pass away. And time marches on. It never stops to prolong the moments of those who are doomed to die. Verse 3. Return, O children of man. God formed man from the dust. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He warned mankind that they would die if they transgressed. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He pronounced judgment on them for their transgression in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, with the words, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The term Moses uses in Psalm 90 is not the same as the one that is used in Genesis chapter 2, but he uses the term return twice, addressing these people as sons of Adam, and he reminds us that God's judgment against sin is a, a results in death. Why does the eternal God visit man with death? He visits man with death because of sin. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 90. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. 
our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That is why they are here in exile. It's not the failed promises of God. They look out on the vast landscape of living in Babylon. They see the destruction of their people. They see terror in their homeland. They see themselves afflicted. And they question, have God's promises failed? Where are you? I thought you made a promise to us. And Moses, after drawing their attention upward to say, consider God, brings them crashing back to reality and says, you're here because of your sin. You're not here because God has failed to be God. You're not here because God has decided he's no longer going to keep his promises. You're here because of your iniquity, your sin, your evil, your wickedness, wickedness that you have all committed. Death has entered into this world because of sin. And the wages of that sin is death. That's not only true in the Old Testament, that is true in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans. Familiar verses to many of us. Romans chapter 3. Familiar verses that are helpful to set our eyes again on today. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Many of you like to travel, and the Bible is very clear. You can travel to anywhere on the planet that you would like to travel to today. You can get on a plane and go to Morocco. You can get on a plane and go to Europe. You can get on a plane and go down to Guatemala. You can go on a plane anywhere you would like to go, and one thing that you will find in every place that you go are sinful people. You cannot travel to any place on planet Earth and find someone who is not sinful. You can meet people from all over the world, who speak different languages than you, who have different socioeconomic statuses than you, who have been trained differently than you, who have been educated differently than you, young and old, rich and poor, from all different types of nations and backgrounds. And the one thing that you will find in common among all of those people is that absolutely every single one of them on planet Earth are evil, wicked, corrupt, and sinful to the core. All have sinned. And the Bible is very clear what it says about our sin. Just turn the page probably in Romans to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Sin that has separated us from God. Sin is a result of not obeying God. For the wages of sin, what sin has earned is death. The wages of your life the way that you have lived, your thinking, your doing, your speaking, 
Everything about it has merited one thing, not favor, only wrath. That's not true just in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. The psalmist teaches us that sin is not some concept that we learn about when Jesus comes. Sin is a universal human problem. And that sin is known to God. The psalmist is very clear about that. Psalm chapter 90. We're back there. Psalm chapter 90 verse 8. He says to us. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Friends, there are no secret sins, the psalmist tells us. God knows all of our sin. The sin that we haven't confessed to our loved ones. The sin that we are ashamed to share with our best friend in the church. The sin that we won't write about in our journal for fear that we would die and someone would find our journal. The sin that we think no one knows about, God knows. God knows all of our sins, all of our misdeeds, all of our evils. God knows everything about us. So why do you and I so often think that we're getting away with it? The scripture is very clear that nothing is hidden from his presence. God sees it as clearly as the noonday and the bright light. And how is it the eternal God visits man with death? The psalmist is very clear. He visits us with death, with his wrath. Look at verse 7. By your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 11. Your wrath according to the fear of you. Moses says, verse 7, that all who die like the withered and dry grass are consumed. They're consumed by the fiery wrath of God. They're terrified by his anger. His fierce presence is against them. They do not know the favor of God. They know the anger of God. Literally, they know the red nose of God, the fierce wrath of God. Friends, when we think of our sin today, that is how God views it. It's red-nosed. It's red-faced. God hates our sin, and he, his wrath burns against it, the psalmist tells us. And the judgment of God's wrath is death. Not just physical death, but worse than that, spiritual death. We will die a death worse than physical death apart from Christ. And it is likened to the floodwaters that just sweep it all away. Notice how the psalmist speaks of it as he writes about his wrath. He says for them in uh, verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. He tells us that they're swept away by the flood. So Moses asks, as he's thinking of this wrath, who considers the power of your anger? He's asking them to consider God's wrath. Who considers the power of your anger according to the fear of you? Friends, if we wrestled with God's wrath in such a way that it actually leads us to fear him in the way that we live. Fear not just where we're terrified of God, but that we actually gain a heart of wisdom and learn how to make our way through this world. Because verse 11, we should fear God because no sin and no sinner can escape his wrath. Why do you think it would be any different for you? Friend, if you're a believer here today, 
and you're hiding sin that you refuse to confess to God and you refuse to confess to others and you refuse to bring to your elders and you refuse to get the help of the membership from, why do you think it would be any different for you than it would be for these people? And friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're here to tell you that you are hiding nothing in your life. It is all laid plain and bare before God. He sees all. He knows all. He will judge your sin. Your sin must be dealt with. His wrath will be poured out on it. And the question is, will it be poured out on you or will it be poured out on God's substitute, Jesus Christ? As Pastor Tim so eloquently said and reminded us earlier, God has fierce anger against sin and he will judge that sin He will pour it out on you or he will pour it out on Jesus Christ. And friend, that is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to bear the punishment that we all deserve. To suffer as a substitute in our place. Bearing the full weight of God's red-nosed wrath and all of his anger against sin in our place. So that we would not have to. So that we might know his favorable presence and be able to have fellowship with God. Friend, if you're here and you're not a believer... We implore you, we call you today to trust in Jesus Christ and in that work where he died in your place. And the Bible is very clear and it is wonderfully simple on what you need to do. You need to tell the truth. You are a sinner. You need to confess that sin and confess your need of God and ask God to forgive you of your sin and the astonishing mercy of the Bible that if you will simply admit your great need of him and the seriousness of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved even if you do not understand much of what the Bible teaches about everything else. Friend, come to Christ today and know the mercy of God in Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins today and believer. As you wrestle with your sin, sin that you want to hide, sin that you want to push away so that no one sees, hear the words afresh from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Exile is the worst, but it reveals the best. It draws our eyes upward to God. It also reminds us of why we are experiencing pain and alienation, death as a result of our sin. And notice third, grace. Look with me in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In verse 12, Moses responds to the realities that he has discussed up to this point in the psalm. God is eternal. Man is ephemeral. We die because of God's wrath against our sin. So, O Lord, Moses asks in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In 38, will be 40 in a few years. Moses tells us that we live to 70, or by reason of strength, 80, or because of modern medical intervention, maybe 90. Friends, when we think of our lives, 
and the passing shadow that they are. And how, in this point, most of us have already lived a third or half or almost all of our days in this room. They are to teach us to gain a heart of wisdom. Moses says, God is eternal. Life is short. Learn to live wisely in this world. To make your way through it with wisdom. And the fear of God. Recognizing who he is. And the reality of sin. And what it does, it destroys. Teach us to number our days. There are so few of them. How many of us have known someone who woke up never to go to sleep again? Or went to bed never to wake up again? Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That among the best of us, with the best life lived here in the congregation, with the most impact the world has ever known, Our life is a dream and a vanishing shadow that will be vaguely remembered by a few. How many of us can say who the Secretary of State was 10 years ago? One of the most important positions in the world and we don't even know and can't remember. Our days are a passing shadow, Moses tells us. Reckoning with the reality of death and the eternity of God on and the reality of sin and what it does teaches us wisdom, we actually learn how to think rightly by thinking rightly about God and rightly about sin so that we can see sin for what it is and make our way through the world. We learn how to make our way through this world and how to live in this exile. You see, one of the things between Psalm 90 in 2023, is that things are not very different for us. We're not oppressed by the Babylonians and we haven't been carried into the same type of captivity, but we are living in an exile. We're living in a time between times, waiting on God's redemption. And here we are as wanderers, believers in this world, making our way to our eternal home. But things are not as they should be. And we read the scripture and remind ourselves of promises that have not yet come to fulfillment. And we ask ourselves questions just like they did here. Where is the promise of his coming? Have the promises of God failed? We learn to make our way through this world and we learn how to live through this exile. Only then, as we begin to think rightly about God, about death, about sin, does Moses then finally, in this song, make a request. This is who God is. This is what death is. This is why you die. Learn to live. Now, verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be Shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses asks once again as he begins to teach us. He's asking God to do what he's promised to do. He's asking God to do what he's promised to do. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Let your work be shown to your servants. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Work that he's praying will live beyond his lifetime. And it did. 
It lived beyond his lifetime, beyond the time when he wasn't allowed to enter to another time when we actually see Moses in the biblical narrative. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip with me to Matthew chapter 17. Deuteronomy 32, we leave Moses at the edge of the promised land, looking out at land that he never gets to enter, looking at a home that he never got to call home, looking at a place that he had always wanted to be, and then he dies in Deuteronomy 34. But once again, we see Moses, now again in the biblical narrative, now in the land, at a future time. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up by a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as with light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking with them. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I'll just pause for a moment before we keep reading. They have Moses. Don't listen to Moses. They have Elijah, great prophet. Don't listen to Elijah. Listen to my son. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. We find Moses again at one of the most important points in biblical history. This time, beyond his lifetime, in the land that he never got to call home. And with this vision we see what actually is bringing the people safely home, the suffering of the Son of Man. The grace of God breaks into the darkest moment of the world, breaks into the exile of these people, teaches them to number their days, teaches us to number our days, teaches us to fear God and how to live wisely in this world, and it helps us to see the grace of God that has been revealed decisively in the person of Jesus Christ. The love of God comes from the wrath of God in this psalm and it's manifested in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who bore our suffering on the cross. Friend, come to this Christ and know his mercy. Exile is the worst, but it reveals the best. Exile, being where we don't want to be with people that we don't want to be with, forces a question. Will we follow God even then? And the violent dislocation of the exile for the people shook them out of their comfortable reality that distorted everything around them. And it finally allowed them to see the depths and the heights that they had never imagined before. They lost everything that they thought was important. 
And they finally found at the end of that everything that was important, God. The exile actually tore the cover away from this life and it showed the emptiness of this life, just like suffering has for so many of us. It actually jars us loose from this world. Exile is the worst that reveals the best. It's hard believing, says Faulkner, but disaster seems good for people. When the superfluous is stripped away, we find the essential, and the essential, the psalmist teaches us, is God. Friends, normal life is full of distractions and irrelevancies. The catastrophe, dislocation, exile, illness, accident, job loss, divorce, death, prognosis, actually shake us loose that we see clearly for the first time. And the reality of our life is finally rearranged around what is eternal and important while we're waiting on our future home because we finally realize that we are not home. That we are not home. And that is why at the end of this service, even though I said we were going to sing on Jordan Stormy Banks every week, we are going to remind ourselves that we are not yet home, but we are almost there. And that is where we are heading, believer. We are not home, but we are almost home. And that is where we are heading. Friends, as we look out onto the vast wasteland of this world, in this time between the times, when we are asking ourselves, have the promises of God failed? Look upward to God. Remind yourself of death that is coming because of sin and the free mercy of God and the person of Jesus Christ and the great grace that is ours because of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture, for its truth, for its teaching. We ask that you would help us now to remember that the promises of God have not failed and they cannot fail and that you will bring us safely home. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?